Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 129, Continuity, Sagas, and Histories. Hello and welcome to episode 129 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So after two episodes with guests, I'm flying solo again, and this time around I'm going to be turning my attention to comic books. Specifically, I'll be looking at a few series by the big two that outline the history of Marvel and DC's respective universes. Marvel Saga, the history of the DC Universe, the history of the Marvel Universe, and the other history of the DC Universe. They all outline the continuities of the time. And while I can't say that I've kept up with continuity on either side in quite a while, I was really into continuity when I first started reading comics, and I actually did a pretty good job of keeping it all straight. So that's why I wanted to take a look at these series. You know, I've read them and reread them recently, and I thought it'd be kind of fun to do just an overview of what these stories are, as well as my history with that concept, with that concept of continuity. So, in a way, this is also part of my origin story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are? I don't know who you are. Now on, you do as I do, okay? Now, only about half of the books I'm going to be talking about on this episode were published by the time I started reading comics in 1990. Uh, the other two have been published within the last five to ten years. And 1990 is really, really important because that's when I started collecting Batman, and by 91, I was going pretty deep into DC continuity, but I was trying to figure out how to cover these, like, you know, um, especially like uh, the history of the DC universe was like really formative in terms of what I knew from continuity. Um, I decided that like, you know, doing an issue by issue rundown of like all of them was going to take too much time. So that's why I'm taking this approach with, with origin story here, or talking about my origin story, because I started thinking about, as I was reading them, why I even care about stuff like comics, universe histories, and, you know, as well as how I got into the idea of continuity and how I discovered in the concept in the first place. Now, I know that some of my earliest comic books, you know, the G.I. Joe and the Transformers books from the mid-1980s, had their own continuity. And I honestly always paid attention to the editor's notes, especially when they referenced issues that I did not own yet, you know, older back issues. Plus, there were 
the yearbooks, the G.I. Joe yearbooks, and those had a rundown of the prior year's worth of stories. And um, in the case of those 1987 comics, I would get to see panels from the issues that I hadn't collected or didn't own yet. So when I really thought about it, I mean, really, I realized that it kind of started there, but also kind of didn't. When I thought back to 1987 and I thought back to a little earlier, my understanding of the concept of a continuity actually begins with not comic books, but Japanese imported cartoons and sitcoms. No, really. (laughs) Now, it's not like there wasn't a continuity to some of the American-made cartoons that were on the air when I was a kid. Scooby-Doo was a one-and-done series, but shows like Challenger of the Super Friends did seem to have enough of a story arc each season that the villains met their ultimate defeat at one point. At least, I remember the ultimate defeat of uh, the Legion of Doom in one iteration of the show. But aside from the times when I remember a multi-part story on G.I. Joe, the Transformers, or the Thundercats, especially the multi-parters that were the first few episodes overall, I wouldn't have been able to tell you at the time whether or not there was an ongoing plot or any story or any sort of thread running through a cartoon season. That's because I was pretty little when a lot of these cartoons came out. You know, you were talking about the first, they're talking about elementary school, for instance, like when He-Man premiered. I was in first grade. You know, I was there for the I Have the Power moment and probably remember the ending with the, you know, probably remember the credits to the end and the PSA at the end more than I remember the actual plot of a He-Man episode. Voltron was a little different. That would have, I would have been at say, in second grade because I do remember that that did have a bit of a continuity. For instance, there was at least one episode where Sven returned and you had to remember Sven having been part of the original crew. And then there was a uh, Ultimate Victory episode in the Vehicle Voltron series, I remember. You know, plus, the majority of the Voltron episodes, I mean, they, they despite the, that series having continuity, they were kind of a wash, rinse, repeat thing, kind of like He-Man. You know, the, they showed the same footage of forming Voltron. And it's not a bad thing. It just, you know... Like I said, I remember bits and pieces of these things, and it worked because I bought the toys. But Robotech, and I covered Robotech all the way back on episode 76 with Donovan Grant. You know, that was the first cartoon I remember having that sense of continuity, or at least of a continuing story. Not only was each episode different, but it continued what had happened the episode before, as opposed to having a villain of the day. Maybe it's because there were three generations of Robotech across the 84 or so episodes of the show. But even at that very young age, when I watched it, I understood that I wasn't waiting for a transformation scene. I wasn't waiting for, you know, them to fight the big Robeast or something. I was seeing a story unfold, and I was paying attention to that story quite a bit, even as I was looking at the action. And I mentioned sitcoms as well. <clears throat> so when I had this concept of a continuing story up across a cartoon series, sitcoms actually really helped me understand the idea that, that there was an ongoing arc to a show. 
And I started watching sitcoms as early as I started watching cartoons. I'm probably about six or seven years old. That's because they came on after cartoons. You know, like you, you would have on channel 5, 9, and 11, you would have your afternoon cartoon block. And then once that ended, probably around 4.30, there was the 4.30 was the last cartoon and 5 o'clock was the, was the first live action show. Um, unless you were, unless it was the five o'clock news. And in the early 1980s, you know, you had a lot of family friendly sitcoms from the sixties and the seventies that were on during that five, five thirty hours. So we saw like the Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island, the Munsters bewitched. Sometimes you got something that wasn't necessarily a sitcom that was a, or that was more like a drama. So you got a lot of lassie. Um, others show more action series like Chips and Wonder Woman or Charlie's Angels or The Six Million Dollar Man. But as you got further and further into the 80s, the sitcoms were dominating the syndication block, probably because you could do two in a row or, you know, you could air more shows in rather than the hour-long show with a half-hour sitcom. And as you got into that, while you did have reruns of say Happy Days or Laverne and Shirley across like WPIX, you also got a lot of more recent stuff. So instead of an hour or so of stuff that my parents watched when they were younger, we got to see the longer running shows of the 70s and 80s. So I saw a lot of Three's Company, Family Ties, Who's the Boss, Growing Pains, Night Court, Perfect Strangers, Different Strokes, The Facts of Life, Full House and Family Matters. Because in the early 90s, that was what you, or late 80s, early 90s, that was what people wanted to see. The early 90s, WPIX would even go on to show Saved by the Bell and Beverly Hills 90210 reruns immediately following cartoons. They were trying to appeal to those older teen siblings who were maybe toughing it out through the rest of the Disney afternoon because their younger brothers and sisters were uh, hogging the television. You know, this is assuming that everybody wasn't watching Nick or MTV. And that there was maybe still only one TV in the house or something. That's beside the point, though. It's two of those sitcoms on the list, by the way. Uh, the different strokes and the facts of life that are important to the point I'm, I'm making. Sloppily making, but I'm making here. By the time I was watching them in reruns, they'd gone through most, if not all, of their original episodes on network. So there were a lot of episodes to air. You know, don't forget, The Facts of Life ran from 1979 to about 19, I think, 87 or 88. Um, different strokes had a shorter shelf life. But you got seven, eight, nine seasons of cast members who went from children to teenagers to young adults. So you saw them all grow up. Syndication packages for shows like that were also usually run in order starting from the first episode to the last episode so you would eventually reach the end of what they had of say the facts of life maybe they got into the chloris leachman seasons but then you go back to that first season the first season of the facts of life is that season where you know joe's not there yet and you have like molly ringwald and a bunch of other girls in the cast in addition to blair natalie and tootie and then if you watched from that point forward, you saw the Joe years, you saw Joe come on and you got the four, the core four members of that cast, plus Mr. Gar Mrs. Garrett. And you saw the show's set change 
about two or three times over the course of its nine seasons. You know, you, you started with the Eastland School for Girls, and then they all started to graduate, or at least Blair and Joe did. So they did Edna's Edibles and the house where Mrs. Garrett was living. The shop got turned into Over Our Heads. And then, then they kind of like phased out the store part of it in the last season or two and just went with the house set. But through that, through watching the girls go from being younger high school students to college students, you, you did catch on and I did catch on that there was a progression of character and story. I know it was a sitcom and a lot of the episodes just kind of one and done wacky adventures misunderstandings or whatever. But, you know, you take the good, you take the bad. So, I, I just, I watched I watched so many sitcoms, it's not even funny. And I could do, I did a little bit of an episode when I did It Came From Syndication about this, but I could do a whole thing about my history with that particular format. And I kept watching them as I got older. I mean, I didn't have cable. And... That was all that was on from 5 o'clock until Jeopardy or Entertainment Tonight. You know, I, I paid attention more and more to what was going on on the show over the changes in all its seasons. Where it was like the new family on Charles in Charge, uh, roast, or the rotating bailiffs on Night Court, Steve or Jefferson on Married with Children, the sudden disappearance of Chuck Cunningham, as well as the evolution of Arnold's on Happy Days. And then I started reading Batman comics. Now, as I mentioned before, I fully came into Batman comics about nine months after the Summer of the Bat. And the first issues of Detective and Batman I bought were about the return of the Joker and the kidnapping of Tim Drake's parents. Now, some of the first ones I read were A Death in the Family and A Lonely Place of Dying. Those are ones that friends loaned to me. I didn't buy the the issues for A Lonely Place of Dying for years, and I only have ever owned a death in the family in a trade. When I read through those and saw what was in the books a year later, I started to pick up on this idea of an ongoing Bat Family saga. Then I got my hands on the final issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths. I wrote about this back in June of 2010. It's one of the kind of the first part of the first set of posts on the blog. But the crossover event that changed everything for the DC Universe was the thing that got me interested in the idea of a DC Universe. Oh, sure, I was reading some Superman and Green Lantern issues in addition to the Batman and New Titans books that I was buying. But, you know, that comic book, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and, and the other issues of the series that I eventually tracked down in 1990 through back issues... They were my introduction to the DC heroes who were not part of the Super Friends and were not part of the Superpowers TV show. From there, I started buying what back issues of various series interested me, and to be honest, were affordable. <laughs> you know, this wasn't the days of digital subscriptions and easily things easily found in trade. So my knowledge of the continuity of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and you name the character, was what I was limited to by the back issues that were available to me at my LCS or the very few greatest stories ever told, etc. trades that were still on sale at Walden Books. But then I began to amass some books from the immediate post-crisis era. And 
You know, it's funny. I don't remember a first time I ever uttered the words pre-crisis and post-crisis or where I saw them. I knew that it was sometime in the early 90s. It might have been due to something I read in Wizard, anyway, or a letter column. But but I knew that concept pretty well. Um, I was pretty much into like what was right in front of me with some early uh, pre-crisis stuff, at least when it came to like Batman and Superman. When I looked at my back issues... I noticed that there were sometimes things other than a UPC symbol in the UPC box. And this kind of segues into what we're going to be talking about. Marvel often had a Spider-Man face or something similar. DC might have had a Where Legends Live or the new DC There's No Stopping Us Now box in an old issue of Titans. Or they may have quick advertisements. The Giffen poster is a must-have. Who Watches the Watchmen and... The history of the DC universe is must-reading. This is where we get the first series of four that I'll be talking about. Published in late 1986, the history of the DC universe was, I believe, the second prestige format book that DC ever produced. The first being Frank Miller's Dark Knight, which came out earlier that year. Now, they'd been publishing original graphic novels for a few years, beginning with the Star Raiders graphic novel in 1983, but those were oversized. They were not the size of a regular comic book, which was this format. Of course, DC would publish tons of prestige format books after this, uh, of varying quality. Trust me, I own quite a ton. I own a ton of them. But this book is truly worthy of that label of prestige. Narrated by Harbinger, one of the protagonists of Crisis. The history of the DCU spins out of a secondary feature which ran along the bottom of issue 10 of that maxi series. It was called the Monitor Tapes. In this black and white strip by the creators team of Marv Wolfman and George Perez, Harbinger sits down and starts talking about the crisis, what makes a hero, and everything that has been going on in the various universes, while the main storyline of the heroes and villains teaming up to stop the Anti-Monitor at the dawn of time runs concurrently. She pledges that she is going to record the history of the universe just before that particular history shatters. And then issue 11 of Crisis on Infinite Earths will open with what is the creation of a single Earth and no multiverse. From what I understand, one of the original outlines for Crisis on Infinite Earths did have a history of the universe issue, or some storyline at that point, and I think that got scrapped in favor of focusing on the battle with the Anti-Monitor. Shades of it do remain, though, as in issue 11, Harbinger tells the heroes a brief history of the Earth they're now living on, and in the last pages of issue 12, she narrates some facts about what happened to particular heroes as well as some hints of the future. The history of the DC Universe across its two issues follows the Monitor Tapes format in that instead of a traditional comic book, it is a series of still images drawn by George Perez, and there are typed text over it. I have to say that I honestly had no idea what this looked like when I ordered it from Mile High Comics in 1991 or so, except for one page that's reprinted in Mark Cotavaz's Tales of the Dark Knight, Batman's First 50 Years. So when I got it and I opened it, I was surprised to see what I was reading. And when I actually read it, I was blown away. Granted, I'd been getting a steady diet of DC history and continuity through Who's Who, both the loose-leaf edition and old issues of the definitive directory of the DC universe that I tracked down at my LCS. So, it's right up my alley. But what could have been a lengthy encyclopedic text piece with panels from old comics was a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of artwork. 
Wolfman, Perez, and Ingle Carl Kessel really outdo themselves, as does Tom Zico, who colored it, because he takes full advantage of the better paper, the better format to deliver a bright, dynamic book. And credit where credit is due to Mike Gold, who edited the book, putting together a project that was really unlike any other. In fact, I have a copy of the history of the DC Universe signed by Wolfman, Kessel, and Gold. So like I said, the story is that of Harbinger narrating a chronological history of the DC Universe, taking us from the dawn of time through the present day. And that was just after Legends. So even though Legends was only on issue four at this point, and into the 30, uh, she did cover the events of that, which would lead into the Suicide Squad book, as well as Wonder Woman. And then she would take us all the way into the 30th century and beyond. For the sake of time, I'm not going to get too into the weeds when it comes to the entire story of these two issues, except to say that issue number one takes us just to the end of World War II, and issue number two picks up from there and brings us to the end of time with the Time Trapper and Harbinger putting the story she told in a gold orb and sending it into parts unknown. Along the way, Wolfman and Perez craft an actual story instead of just listing the historical events. They trace the soul of the first woman ever killed by a man to the creation of the Amazon and eventually the rise of Wonder Woman. They show the destruction of Krypton and occasionally show Kal-El's rockets streaking across space. We see the ancient origins of Shazam, Black Adam, Hawkman and Hawkwoman, and the Blue Beetle's Scarab. The Guardians of the Universe rise. Corona conducts his experiments. They split with the controllers. They create the Manhunters and the Green Lantern Corps. Each page is illustrated beautifully with Perez at the height of his game, no matter if it's the splash pages of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, the double-page spreads of the All-Star Squadron and Legion of Superheroes, or one of my favorite, the Kubert-esque drawing of Sergeant Rock toward the end of book one. I love this book, and I read it from cover to cover multiple times over when I was younger. The spines on my individual issues are well-worn and well-loved, But I also have, thanks to Shag, the special edition hardcover that DC published through Graffiti Designs in 1988. It has a gorgeous Bill Sienkiewicz cover and came with extras, such as text pieces along with a fold-out DC Heroes jam poster, which I still need to get framed, by the way, (laughs) and a few reproductions of memos related to Crisis. This is what I've got signed, and I'm a little bummed that I was never able to get George Perez's signature on it, but I still say it's one of my most treasure hardcovers because I love the series, and my friend sent it to me, so it's pretty awesome. Now, I'd always wanted a book three, right? So I'm, I'm, a, I'm getting into the DC universe around 1990. Armageddon 2001 and War of the Gods come out in the summer of 91, and I'm all in because I'm crossover guy. I loved Crisis. I went back and collected Millennium and Legends. Uh, Millennium not being very good, Legends being really solid, and then I bought the Invasion issues. So I, I have been reading these crossovers, and there's so much more beyond just what was in the two books. I'm like, oh, it would be great to insert a third book here, have Harbinger come back and do something. But it wasn't possible to see that during the 90s. You know, Wolfman and Perez weren't really doing a whole heck of a lot of DC work. Uh, Yeah, Wolfman was still on Titans. Perez popped up every once in a while. But 
The company, too, was also focused on big events like Doomsday and Nightfall. We got a Dan Jurgens created fold-out of the history of the universe in the final issue of Zero Hour, and that was kind of cool. The DC Universe Encyclopedia coffee tables that DK Publishing put out in the 2000s were also pretty fun. I check it out of the library every once in a while. I did like the DC Universe Legacies series that came out around, uh, I think it was 2010 or so uh, for the 75th anniversary of the company. That was fun to read, and that was better than I thought it actually would be. Perez was involved with part of that. But I don't know. It was It was not exactly what I was hoping for. So all, all I could really do was for years piece together stuff from those books, some of the Secret Files and Origins books, and eventually DC changed all their continuity anyway, again and again and again, to a point where I really didn't care. <laughs> but then, last year, they published the other history of the DC Universe. Now, you heard me talk about this book last year where Donovan and I took a look at the Judas Contract. And if you want a deeper dive into at least one issue of that series, go check out episode 121. Published under DC's Black Label, The Other History of the DC Universe is an oversized five-book series written by John Ridley with art by Giuseppe Quincoli and Andrea Cucci with art with colors by Jose Velarubia. And I apologize if I butchered those names. It uses the same format as the Wolfman Perez book, giving us text and illustrations, but instead of a character like Harbinger narrating the history of the entire universe from top to bottom, with a special focus on heroes, the series has five separate narrators, all people of color, and all of whom have played a supporting or secondary role in DC, at least when compared to the big-name superheroes. We start in 1970 and we end in 2010, beginning with Black Lightning in issue number one, then seeing Mal and Bumblebee in issue number two, Katana in issue number three, Renee Montoya in issue four, and Thunder, who is Black Lightning's daughter, in issue five. Being that this is the Black label and it can exist outside of current continuity, Ridley can focus on what each character witnessed and mostly line everything up along publication dates as opposed to trying to squeeze everything into a five-year timeline or a sliding scale. And by starting with Jefferson Pierce and ending with his daughter, we get a truly multi-generational look at the continuity of the stories. Now, I have to admit that when this came out, I really wasn't following anything DC-related other than a book or two. But the idea looked really cool, and it sounded like the other series that I hold near and dear to my heart, which was the history of the DC Universe, so I decided to pull it on my pull list. Almost immediately, I knew I'd made the right choice, and not just because it really is like a lot of that history. It looks a lot like the history of the DC Universe. They clearly, Ridley clearly liked that format and was using it. He not only has the character recount every bit of their personal history, as well as the major events of DC Comics in the Bronze and Modern Eras, he has them explore what it's like to be Black, Asian, Latinx, and queer in a world of heroes who skew mostly white, straight, and male. Moreover, while he does spend time calling out the iniquities of our superhero storytelling, as well as pointing out the problematic aspects of past love stories, Ridley doesn't simply take a side and use each character to show that side. There's nuance throughout the books, mainly because of the characters who are narrating. 
Unlike Harbinger, whose role in the history of the DC Universe was strictly as a record keeper, each of the narrators in the other history of the DC Universe is three-dimensional, and they have their own struggles. We see Black Lightning look skeptically at Jon Stewart when he first appears, seeing him as, quote, an appeaser at first, then later seeing him in a new light after getting to know him after the destruction of Zanshi. Mal and Karen trade off on their narration and really gives us a deep-cut reference to a hero known as Jericho, the first one, who was originally supposed to be DC's first black hero in Titans, Teen Titans number 20, but that was something that was ultimately changed by editorial and not the writer. I believe the writer was Marv Wolfman, actually, if I'm not mistaken. Katana, as Don and I discussed in episode 121, looks at the relationship between Terra and Deathstroke as one of sexual assault. Renee Montoya's story is very personal. A look at her understanding her sexuality during the era of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and George W. Bush. And then finally, Thunder, a.k.a. Anissa Pierce, gives us a truly generational look at the history because she's often in conflict with her dad and his wishes to protect his daughters. Not only that, it gives us a look at how a younger generation might view the older one or have a different perspective. Sure, that's nothing new, and there's an entire subgenre of teen stories built around that. But here it's almost refreshing to see among superheroes and adds to that nuance and humanity I was talking about. And I have to rave about the art in the other history of the DC Universe. It's hard. Okay, it's damn near impossible to top the work that George Perez and Carl Kiesel did in the history of the DC Universe, but Kamikoli, Cucci, and Villa Rubia do an outstanding job here. They depict certain events just like we remember them from the comics, while also trying not to be Perez. The art matches the tone and creates the mood perfectly. It's truly a gorgeous book, and I have to be honest, this is one of four series I bought from DC's Black Label, and I've loved all of them so far. They're really doing a great job with this set of stories. You know, I've got this. I've got um, Catwoman Lonely City, which is awesome. I have the Wonder Woman uh, and the Wonder Woman series, Wonder Woman Historia, and then the Wonder Woman, like the Dead Earth thing. All of them were outstanding. So check out some of these DC Black Label series. And definitely pick up what you, if you can find all the issues, you can find the, the hardcover trade, the other history, the DC universe, and, and do it in a print format. That oversized print format really lends itself well to, the, to, to showcasing the artwork because it's just absolutely gorgeous. So I'm going to take a quick break here. And when I get back, I'm going to look at some of the other side of this particular coin. I'm going to look at Marvel Comics. So stick around. In all his decades of publishing history, one event has affected Superman more than any other. Worlds lived, worlds died, and that was only the beginning. Superman was never the same. Presenting Superman in Crisis. Available weekly from January 3rd, 2022 at com. Because I started reading comics in 1990 with Batman and Detective Comics, and I spent much of my comics collecting career with DC, Marvel, at least its history and its continuity, has been a blind spot for me for a very long time. 
Sure, I bought some Spider-Man books here and there, and during the early 1990s had my X-Men phase. But when the MCU started, my knowledge of how true the movies were to the stories, it was completely lacking. I guess it's not a bad thing, though, considering it allowed me to not nitpick every little bit of every story as they appeared on screen. I just enjoyed them for what they were. Plus, one of my problems with Marvel, at least in the last 20 years or so, is that when I express some interest in getting into Marvel, I don't know where to start. Like, I'll flip through Marvel previews and not be able to make heads or tails of multiple titles for multiple characters in addition to whatever crossover events are going on at the moment. So entire years, like, go by. <laughs> and I don't, I realize that, like, I might have been interested in one thing and then it's gone. Or the storyline moved on. I mean, even right now, I'm buying one Marvel series for myself, which is their King Conan series, miniseries that's going on right now. And any other Marvel series I buy are for Brett, and it's all the Spider-Man stuff. So it's Amazing Spider-Man, Miles Morales, Venom, um, and he's enjoying those. I am considering buying a Marvel Unlimited subscription, uh, and the reason is these two series. They've kind of made me really curious as to digging deeper into the stories that are discussed within. And those series are the history of the Marvel Universe and Marvel Saga. Now, I'm going to start with Marvel Saga first, even though I read it second out of the two, and I've read them within the last year or so. Marvel Saga was published from 1985 to 1987, so it is the older of the two. But I do have to say that um, I didn't go into these books completely blind. You know, um, Like I said, I, it is a blind spot for me, but I know a little bit of Marvel history here and there, especially because um, my uncle gave me the Les Daniels Marvel book for Christmas. It was about 90 or 91. I still have it in hardcover. And... I do remember being confused about being 50 years of the world's greatest comics when they just celebrated the 25th anniversary a few years earlier, but, you know, whatever. Once I read through it, though, and I read the character profiles over and over, I mean, I would flip through that all the time. And uh, it was really cool. It was a really cool way to clue me into the company's rich history. And I eventually did get to know a fair amount of X-Men continuity, because I did buy X-Men for a little while and I have some trades and now I have like all these essential volumes and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I read Marvels in the mid nineties that helped me understand some of the things. And then I grabbed all of the deluxe editions of Ohatmu a few years ago when my LCS was having their, uh, short box Tober event. So fill a short box for 25 bucks and they had the entire deluxe edition of Ohatmu in there. So I threw all that together. So, you know, I know who some of the characters are. I haven't read a lot of the stories. Um, I've rectified a little bit of that since then. I've read bits and pieces of some things here and there. Um, a couple of trades of Walt Simonson's Thor, a lot of X-Men, some Spidey. So in a sense, it's still a little bit hazy as far as what the continuity of things are, especially the classic stories. You know, I've never read any Lee Kirby Fantastic Four or Lee Ditko Spider-Man or any of the Hulk for that instance, beyond a couple of issues here and there. 
So Marvel Saga was a great way to fill it in. And if you're not familiar with Marvel Saga, it is a series that Marvel published in double issue size for the price of a dollar back in the mid 80s. Now, this was at a time when the price of a Marvel comic was starting to approach 75 cents, although some of their books were still holding the line at 65 cents. Either way, this was a bigger buy for a lot of comics fans, but considering that the market for comics was really heating up at this point, and this is also during the Jim Shooter era, which say what you want about the guy, it did bring Marvel to new heights and brought in a lot of new readers. There definitely, you know, there were going to be readers interested in past stories. Now, they did have Marvel Tales with Spider-Man stuff. They would eventually get classic X-Men off the ground, but... You know, there wasn't much else beyond that except for a couple of trades or graphic novels. You know, Ohatmu had started around this time and was clearly a companion piece to something like Marvel Saga, just as you can say that the history of the DC Universe is a companion piece to Who's Who, or at least that's how Shag and Rob did it on the Who's Who podcast. So there was interest there. There was interest in Marvel's history. And I do remember seeing some features about Marvel Saga, specifically issue number 21, which uh, detailed the relationship between Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson. And that was in the Marvel Age issue that tied into the Spider-Man wedding, which I actually did cover over on the original origin story miniseries. So I knew what the series was when I came across volume two of the essential Marvel saga at my LCS for five bucks on a discount trade shelf. I never really came across the series in back issue bins, maybe an issue or two, but nothing that really made me want to pick it up and read it. But for five bucks, you know, I'll pick up the essential volume. And I tried to find number one at the Baltimore Comic-Con. I couldn't find it. I eventually broke down and got it off of eBay for I think I paid less than $10 for the essential, including shipping, so it wasn't too bad. And that way I could read the entire thing if I wanted to. The format for Marvel for Marvel Saga, by the way, is text with panels from previous issues. It was a really easy format for me to get used to because I spent all that time reading the G.I. Joe yearbooks back when I was younger. And I, and I have the G.I. Joe yearbooks in trade, too. So that's what the recap sections look like. And yeah, that was really, really cool, except that instead of it just being one comic with G.I. Joe, Marvel Saga was all the comics and all the heroes told in chronological order, beginning with the dawn of the universe and then making its way into the early age of heroes, World War II, and eventually to the book that is considered the start of the Marvel Universe, Fantastic Four number one. From there, as other comics began publication, writer Peter Sanderson put all of the events in order in a way that has to be painstakingly researched. That's a job I would love to have had, you know, just go through all these Marvel books and catalog things and read things. I mean, man, I know there were some Marvel indexes out there too at the time, and that probably differently helped, but really, like... <sighs> Just the job he had, you had to switch back and forth between what was going on in a Fantastic Four storyline versus the Avengers, the X-Men, Spider-Man, etc. And it had to be all like coherent. It's a monumental task. A task I'm up for if anybody's listening and wants me to recreate this. Anyway, Sanderson writes the series all the way to its final issue, and that's number 25. Although I have a feeling that by the time they do the special Spider-Man wedding tie-in with issue 21, the writing was on the wall for its cancellation. Danny Fingeroth stepped stopped editing the book, and Adam Blaustein took over for the final five issues of the series. 
Now, according to Mike's Amazing World, with the exception of one issue of Mark Hazard, Merck, these are Blaustein's only editorial credits, where his finger off would go on to be an editor in Moon Knight and Spider-Man until 96. So perhaps this is one of those, we're going to axe the book anyway, let's see what the kid can do things. Comics companies did this all the time. I think it also explains how the story shifts from a comprehensive review of the entire Marvel Universe to really just focusing on the Fantastic Four. You get through the last few issues of the series, it's all about like the lead-up and events of the Galactus storyline. In fact, once they cover that in issue 25, there's this whole couple of pages end of, and here's what everyone else to, was up to while the Fantastic Four were battling Galactus. You know, and I guess you're going to try to end a series like this on a huge climax, and the Galactus story is definitely it. I mean, it would have been cool to see if they could keep it going, especially as the 60s wore on, more and more titles were being introduced to the line, it got more and more complicated. For what it is, though, I really enjoyed it. In some cases, this is the first time I've read some of the actual stories that make up the classic Marvel books. Yeah, I'd read a few before in reprints or bits and pieces, but with the exception of the X-Men, I like I said, I've never gone through an entire classic Marvel run from the 60s. So this sample platter, as it is, was a nice treat, and it makes me want to go back and read the actual books that contain the stories. So yeah, that Marvel Unlimited subscription might be on the horizon. Now, the same can be said here for the history of the Marvel Universe. Written by Mark Wade with art by Javier Rodriguez and Alvano Lopez, this is similar to the history of the DC Universe. It wasn't published in par- uh, prestige format. It was published as a regular comic book. But you have a character narrating the story of, well, the history of the Marvel Universe, much like Harbinger narrates the history of the DC Universe. But instead of Harbinger or a Harbinger-like character, we get the Watch, like, you know, like the Watcher or somebody we get Franklin Richards and Galactus, and they're sitting at the very end of time. The universe is dying around them, and they are the only ones who are left. Now, Galactus is appropriate here because he was present at the death of the prior universe and then was reborn in the birth of this one. Now, he will die, and Franklin is basically going to become the next universe's Galactus or some equivalent thereof. So Franklin asks Galactus to tell him the story of the history of this universe, and Galactus does this even as he gets weaker and weaker and eventually dissipates once he is concluded. It's a great framing device in that it's almost one last bedtime story in a way. And who better to write the story than Mark Wade? Okay, maybe Kurt Busiek, but really, that's like those are the two people that I that I think if I was a comics publisher, knowing their reputation for things like continuity and understanding it, they're the people to do it. And Wade does an outstanding job of weaving it all together in, in one cohesive narrative. Instead of taking the Wolfman Paris approach of giving an overview of events, he gets into specific major events in the lives of various Marvel heroes. Granted, Marvin and George had two issues for their book. Wade and Rodriguez have six. But he jams as much as he can in there, and he works it really well. Plus, the art's beautiful. It has solid representations of each character, along with dynamic panels that show the action of their snapshots. And I can tell that they're really having fun drawing all of it. Plus, the individual issues also have annotations in the back. Like, there's a whole annotation section telling you which comics each of these moments comes from. That's pretty cool. 
It's just as fun as pouring over every panel, and if it's not a ringing endorsement to go read more Marvel, I don't know what is. Now, while I'm not sure if Marvel Saga is currently available in a reprint other than the now out-of-print essentials, the other three series are collected in trades that are available. I know that the history of the Marvel Universe got its own trade in 2021, and I'm going to see if my LCS has it, because this is definitely a bookshelf keeper. The history of the DC Universe got its own trade a few years back and was also put into the back part of the Crisis on Infinite Earths 50th, uh, 30th anniversary trade, as well as the DC in the 80s, the Experiments hardcover. The other history of the DC Universe had a hardcover collection that came out back in 2021, in November, so I assume that a softcover will be out at some point in 2022. Now, as a comic book fan, I know that continuity can be extremely frustrating extremely. At the same time, reading through these histories also reminds me why I love it. I'm a naturally curious person, and very often when I discover something, whether it be a story or a movie or a song, I want to know more. I want to hear more. I want to see more. So when I come into the middle of the story of someone as well established as Batman or Superman or Spider-Man or Captain America... I'm curious as to what's come before while I wait for what's next. Reading these histories, whether they go into granular issue-by-issue detail or give nuanced portrayal of a character's life story in the context of a larger one, I'm excited to see what the source of material looks like. And truly, it's where I find my joy. So that'll do it for the main part of the episode. But before I go, I do have some listener feedback. And I have an email from Professor Allen whose subject is PBS Culture Affidavit. And he says, Tom, I enjoyed your PBS retrospective. Ah, the memories. For me, the most memorable bits of PBS programming, the ones that still impact my taste to this day, were the Tom Baker Doctor Who episodes and the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes episodes, which were presented as part of the mystery series. Those helped make me the Anglophile I am today. That and, of course, Tess. You know, you, me, and Stella should talk about that novel sometime. I'm going to break just this plug. Episode 50 of Required Reading with Tom and Stella from about a a year ago or so, where we did sit down and talk about Tess of the Durbervilles. So check that out. Anyway, Alan says, I also have memory of M's growing up years, the early to mid-90s. My two favorites of that era were the one that you mentioned, Square One TV, especially the MathNet sequences. I absolutely love that show. Yeah, so did I. One that you missed is another that very few people remember, perhaps that because it ran for only two seasons, but that was the literature show Wishbone. In each episode, a dog imagines himself into the recreations of famous literary works. That show introduced M to Shakespeare, Twain, Dickens, Cervantes, Poe, and many other bits of literature and history. I'm going to pause here to say that I think Stella has mentioned it. Wishbone would have been after my time, so to speak. I think by the time it was on... That and Ghostwriter were both on PBS, I believe, and they were on. By that time, I think I had moved on to watching, like, say, By the Bell and 90210 reruns and was not really watching PBS anymore because Degrassi had been taken off the air. But I do remember them being on. And then Alan then says, and thank you for mentioning the epicness of Where in the World is Carmen San Diego. Excellent episode. Keep up the good work, and thanks for the memories. Professor Allen, who is on the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network and Dorkness to Light, you can check him out. I would, the Quarterbin Podcast, as well as um, 
Relatively Geeky Presents, uh, Comics Reading Journal. He's got some great stuff. And then he also says, a purely woman faithfully podcasted, attests to the Dur- Durbervilles podcast and says, sadly, that one exists only in my imagination. <laughs> Ryan Daly commented on Fallen Walls Open Curtains number 10, the last uh, the last particular uh, episode of that series. He says, I got to binge the last five episodes. This is my feel-good podcast of the season. Thanks, Ryan. I, I had so much fun doing that. Um, I've, I was so glad. I was very happy with the way it turned out and the way it finished up. Um, and, uh, yeah, I got to do another miniseries at some point. Don't know exactly what I'm going to do. I have a couple of ideas, but we will eventually, I'll just get around to that. Over on my blog on New Year's Eve, I had a post about the Much Music Tree Toss. And, uh, Ranger Gord said, uh, regarding Ed the Sock, Believe it or not, Ed the Sock is still a thing. Podcasts, social media, YouTube channels, even a cooking show. He ran a mock campaign for premiere of Ontario. His current content, however, is a little too slavish toward the Trudeau government for me. Yeah, yeah, I did find Ed the Sock on Twitter, and I did follow him. Um, also, if you're interested, uh, those of you guys, um, I, I probably should do an episode on my experience with the Canadian video channel Much Music because I did pick it up on Long Island when I was – uh, in college, that's where I know the sock from. Um, Erica M., who was a DJ, uh, sorry, a VJ on that channel, one of the earliest VJs on this channel, has a podcast, and it's kind of pod faded. Um, but she had a podcast called "The Reinvention of the VJ," and she would she went and talked to people who who were VJs and, and worked for Much Music, including the guy who created Ed the Sock. And just interview them about their time there and what they've been doing uh, since then. It's a great series. And uh, I listened to the episodes of the people who I recognized from the short time I was able to watch much in on Long Island um, in the very late 90s and very, very early 2000s. So I would go check that out if you get the chance. But for me, that'll do it. Um, it I'll be back in, another, in a month or so with another episode. Don't know exactly what I'm doing yet, but uh, I'm sure it'll be just as random as everything. And until then, don't forget to email or comment if you have anything to say about this or any other episode of the series. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.